We begin with a question here on the Radio Bible Course, and we're happy that you joined us. Has God already established a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, or will he make another covenant with them, seeing that what was stated here in Hebrews chapter 8 has not been fulfilled? After all, the Jews do not have the word of God written in their hearts. They do not know God, and that was part of the new covenant. So does this mean that the new covenant with Israel and Judah has already been made and Gentiles are beneficiaries of it? Or will there be a new covenant made with Israel and Judah in the future? Well, the writer of Hebrews in chapter 9, verse 15, declares that Jesus is the mediator of a new covenant. And in chapter 10, verse 9, he declares, He abolishes the first in order to establish the second. So the answer to the question is, the new covenant has been established, but not fulfilled. The Apostle Paul apparently believed that the new covenant had been made, although not fulfilled. In 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 6, he writes that God, quote, has made us competent to be ministers of a new covenant, not in a written code, but in the Spirit. For the written code kills, but the Spirit gives life. Why would Paul write that if the new covenant was not in effect? It had been established, and the church is apparently under it. But Israel, too, will come under it in the future. Keep in mind that when Jesus held the cup at the Last Supper, he said to his disciples, This is my blood of the new covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Now that's quoted in Matthew chapter 26, 28, and also in Luke 22:20, 20, where it says, It's the new covenant in my blood. So Jesus did refer to the new covenant. Now he was meeting with Jews. All of his disciples were Jews. And he was talking to them about a covenant, and they certainly were aware of a new covenant that Jeremiah 31 had promised. So his reference to the new covenant apparently is identified with that new covenant of Jeremiah. When Paul wrote to the Corinthians... In his first epistle, chapter 11, verse 25, he quotes this statement from Jesus. This cup is the new covenant in my blood, indicating the making of the covenant by the death of Jesus. He, of course, was writing to Gentiles in Corinth, and he applied the new covenant to them. And it thus applies to us who believe, who are not Jews. But God has not done in the hearts and minds of Jews what he promised he would do under the new covenant. How can the new covenant begin without those changes in God's people? Bible scholars argue this point, and some say there will be a new covenant made in the future. I believe the answer may lie in the words of Hebrews 8 and Jeremiah 31. Now, why did Jeremiah write the words, After those days? 
after introducing the subject of a new covenant. Why doesn't Jeremiah 31, 33 say, in those days? Is Jeremiah suggesting a time gap between the making of a new covenant and the fulfillment of God's will in connection with it? Hebrews 8, verse 10 and 10, verse 16 both use the expression, after those days. Now listen to those passages again. This is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel. After those days, says the Lord. And in chapter 10, verse 16, he writes, This is the covenant that I will make with them. After those days, says the Lord, I will put my laws on their hearts and write them in their minds. Now the clause, after those days, might just be the clue that a covenant would be made and later the terms of it would be fulfilled. In any event, in verse 13 of Hebrews 8, the author implies that the new has begun because the old is vanishing. The prophet said nothing about God making a covenant with the church. They, of course, had no revelation about the church. The church was a mystery, and Paul so declares that. Now, this is an important teaching to understand Paul on his use of mystery. A mystery does not mean something mysterious. The use of the word mystery in the New Testament refers to something which was not made known in former times, but now has been made known. And that's how Paul uses it in Ephesians chapter 3. He writes, For this reason I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus, for the sake of you Gentiles, if indeed you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace which was given to me for you, that by revelation there was made known to me the mystery, as I wrote before in brief, and by referring to this, when you read, you can understand my insight into the mystery of Christ, which in other generations was not made known to the sons of men, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets in the Spirit. To be specific, that the Gentiles are fellow heirs and fellow members of the body and fellow partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. So the mystery was this, that Gentiles and Jews would be in one body, they would be brothers, and they would be fellow heirs, members, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Well, that's exactly what the church was in the New Testament days a union of Jew and Gentile in Christ. That was the mystery. Now, you won't read about that mystery in the Old Testament. There was no revelation about the church back there. Oh, there was revelation to the prophets that Gentiles would be saved, but nothing about their union with Jews in one body. But the prophets did write about God's covenants with Israel, and we, the Church of Jesus Christ, are blessed through those covenants. We are no longer aliens nor strangers to God. We are full-fledged, first-class members of the Church of Jesus Christ. Now, 
In this connection, I am troubled about something that is taking place and has been going on for a couple of decades now. There have been Jews who have come to the knowledge of Jesus Christ as Savior. They have believed in him and they have rejoiced, and we rejoice. But these Jews say something that troubles me. They say, we are fulfilled Jews. Now, if they say that, should I say, I am a fulfilled Gentile? How will that fulfilled Jew and the fulfilled Gentile get along and honor Christ if we take that kind of a position? Paul never did that. He didn't talk about himself being a fulfilled Jew. What did Paul say? He said he was one in Christ with Jew and Gentile. Now that reminds me of what we discussed earlier in Ephesians chapter 2. But now in Christ Jesus, you who formerly were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace who made both groups into one and broke down the barrier of the dividing wall by abolishing in his flesh the enmity which is the law of commandments contained in ordinances, that in himself he might make the two into one new man, thus establishing peace. Friends, there is no Jew or Gentile in Christ. We have been made one, and we dishonor the work of Christ which made us one if we insist on separating ourselves by national origin or by ethnic origin. In 1 Corinthians chapter 10, Paul said, Give no offense neither to the Jew, nor to the Gentile, nor to the church of God. What does that teach me? It teaches me that I'm not a Jew nor a Gentile. Now that I have believed in Christ, I'm in a new class of people. I am in the church of God. Now listen to this verse again. 1 Corinthians 10, verse 31 and 32. Whether then you eat or drink, or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Give no offense either to Jews or to Greeks, that's Gentiles, or to the church of God. Now, I didn't make this up. This is God's separation. He has identified three groups of people in the world, Jews, non-Jews, and those who believe from both of those groups he calls the church of God. You see, God has set us apart. When we believe in Jesus Christ, we have been set apart as his own people for his own use and his glory. He calls us the church of God. Other places, it's the church of Jesus Christ. Now, we ought to recognize that and not call ourselves completed Jews or completed Gentiles. We are his people. We are the church which Jesus Christ promised he would build. We are the church of Jesus Christ. Now, there are people who will come to your door claiming that they are the church of Jesus Christ of the Latter-day Saints. I had a visit from some of these people, and I let them talk. I invited them in, and I showed them hospitality, and they told me for about 20 minutes what they believed. And then I said to them, 
Now let me say a word. I have believed in this Jesus Christ, and he has forgiven me all of my sins. He has given me the new birth and has put his spirit into my heart. He has made me an heir and a joint heir of Jesus Christ. He has taken away all of my sins, given me a new hope, and he has blessed me with all blessings in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Now, what do you have that I don't have? And one of them looked at the watch and said, I think we better be leaving. And on the way out, one of them said to me, Which church did you say you belong to? I said, I belong to the Church of Jesus Christ of the early day saints. They couldn't handle that. But that's the truth, friends. You and I who have believed in Jesus Christ are in the same church that Paul was in and those early Corinthians were in. It's the church of Jesus Christ of those early day saints. Now, in regard to this new covenant, when we drink the cup as a memorial to the crucifixion of Christ, we are also remembering the new covenant which brought us these untold blessings. Gentiles have been born anew by faith under this new covenant. Israel also will be born anew when he believes under this same covenant. The way God changed you and me, giving us a new heart for his word, a love for his son, a desire for things of the spirit, a trust in Christ's righteousness, and a satisfaction with Christ's sacrifice, will also be given to the Jews when the new covenant is fulfilled. Well, we're out of time. Thank you for listening today. Please join me here tomorrow for the beginning of chapter 9 of the book of Hebrews. Until tomorrow, this is Nick Calavota reminding you to rejoice in the good news.